tawhiti rawa i tō tātou hairinga atu, te kore haere tonu, maharawa o tātou mahi, te kore mahi tonu. We have come too far to not go further. We have done too much to not do more. Inga mana inga reo hemihi tēnei kia koutou katoa e are taringa mai ana ki tēnei hotaka a Te Ahika. I'm Justine Murray. And I'm Maraia Rakraku and this is Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. We're all over Aotearoa this week. I'm freshly back from a trip to Ōmaio, Tōrere. A few weeks back, Justin was at the Kai in the Bay Māori Wild Food Festival in Napier. As well as sampling Kai, she met television chef Anne Thorpe. Well, uh, well, you know, I made this apple sponge when I was in primary, in, um, primary school. Most, most beautiful thing I'd ever tasted. Can you make an apple sponge? And I thought, I want to be the cook of the whānau. So I added that to all my chores and um, I just kept cooking and I got better and better and I've cooked around the world and um, I've, done, you know, I've done good from, uh, from, from my cooking. That's coming up shortly. During the 1950s and 1960s, Māori deserted their rural communities en masse for jobs and opportunities in the big cities. Fast forward 40 years and the kauta whānau of Omayo, Tōrere in the Bay of Plenty has reversed that trend. Over here where I am, uh, our children have gone out into the world, but they've come back because they find that they've found that there's something here that we have here as a family that you can't get out there. So here we are working as a family, we're all getting on with one another, and we're creating something that we all were raised with, and that we're going to treasure and maintain for generations to come. Already, businesses are gearing up for Rugby World Cup 2011, and the Ministry of Māori Development, Te Puni Kōkiri, is managing Māori design. I am pleased there is a commercial space for Māori to occupy, and I encourage the commercial and business sector to learn from this project here today and to not shy away from engaging with our people in commercial terms. Māori development involves improving economic conditions for Māori. Sport has a huge potential to promote Māori development, and Māori have made a huge contribution to the development of sport. And we finish off this week's broadcast with a review of Stan Walker's album, From the Inside Out. He won last year's TV talent quest, Australian Idol. Koe ranga kaupapa e heke mai nei. That's what's coming up in today's Te Ahika. You're listening to Te Ahika, Radio National. Kai. In all its raw, cooked, organic and inorganic glory was on the menu for Justine recently when she went to the very first Kai in the Bay Māori Wild Food Festival in Napier. Gee, it's a tough job, Neha, but <laughs> someone has to do it. Ida, I arrived to 24-degree weather, which, if you live in Wellington, it's like entering the Sahara Desert. And you wandered through the various coastals like a starving nomad, didn't you, Justine? Ida. She sampled oysters, fish, bread, fruit, and basically anything that wasn't nailed down. I was researching Mariah. <laughs> so while you were researching, you bumped into television chef Anne Thorpe, whose cooking days were very much shaped by her childhood in Whakatane. We'll hear from her in a moment. Justin Murray Rally, New Zealand National, Te Ahika, here at Kai in the Bay Food Festival, Hawke's Bay. Kia ora rā. Oh, kia ora, my name's Henry Heke, and uh, originally uh, 
Taranaki. I was born in Taranaki, but uh, my family are from Waikato, and um, we're the hekes from uh, Te Taumata and Parawera. Uh, but uh, I've married into the, the iwi here from Ngātikau Nunu and Whānau Apanui, uh, my lovely wife, uh, Moni Kakiwai. Kia ora, Henry Motera. Henry, tell us about uh, what Kai in the Bay uh, Festival is. Actually, what's the official title? So it's called Kai in the Bay Māori and Wild Food Festival. What happened about uh, five months ago, Kai Time on the Road was filming in, at the Kafia Kai Food Festival in Waikato, and I've never been there. And all my life, uh, whilst working on the Lynx Fast Ferry, I've always wanted to go to the Hokitika Wild Food Fest, but never got the opportunity to go there. So when I saw Pete Beatty on there and cooking at the Kafia Food Festival, I said, that's me, I'm going to do my own one here in Hawke's Bay. So I shared it with a few friends, uh, Rob Whaitere, who's one of the co-founders with me, and we told some other people, and they urged us on and said, why not go and do it, because it would be a fantastic thing. So it's about health, it's about awareness, it's really about food, because the common denominator, even though the, the title says Māori and Wild Food Fest, it's really about food, and it's about getting people along and sharing new ideas. And, and when the vision was to be, or is, sorry, is to be uh, an internationally recognised food calendar event in Hawke's Bay. Because this is the first, is this the first one? This is the first one, and um, we're going to have many others. So, yeah. So at the moment, uh, we're inside one of the marquee um, partitions here, and uh, in front of me I have Anne Thorpe from Kai Ora, the programme on Māori television, who is uh, preparing a meal uh, to a crowd of about 60 people. And then there's a petition at the back, and then over the other way there is uh, more stalls inside the huge market. It's probably about a good 100, metre lo- 100 metres long. Well, you know what, one of the dishes I'm making today, I'm just asking about face. I'm going to make a Pātiki Grimalata here, so that's what we want to end up with for one of the dishes, so I'll um, start with that one I think. So at the moment uh, Anne Thorpe is uh, making a dish. I'm going to put the old um, Pātiki into the pan. I'm Anne Thorpe, Ngātikau Ngātirangi and uh, reared in um, Whakatāni till uh, I was a teenager and then went to Gisborne. Tanganui Akiwa and um, had a fabulous life there till I uh, grew up to about uh, 1920 and then um, now I'm in Auckland. Now you're in Auckland? Now I'm in Auckland. So, Anne, of course, your your show, which is called Kai Ora, um, also the name of your book on Māori television, and the Food Channel. And the Food Channel? Yes. How did the series um, initially come about? Well, it was the advent of Māori television uh, when they were calling for proposals. And I thought I'd put a proposal in. Um, a, it was a re- it's a reflection of my, my life, really, because my mates would come over, I would cook them a feed, and they would be there forever, years and years, and, um, and, and then they would sing. You know, they would pick up the guitars and sing. So when I, I was doing this proposal, I said, OK, you guys, it's my turn. You can come over and sing on the, on the show. And that's how it came about. It was accepted and, um, by Māori Television and... and Kai order came into being. So, and with, um, with with a lot of Māori chefs, they kind of have um, the, the the training background. Eventually, working in, in, in big uh, well restaurants. Have you had that same experience? Well, uh, you know, my homes have been my restaurants, and I've done exclusive cooking. Although I still cook for many people. Now I'm uh, New Zealand guest chef uh, for Piero Cruises, 
and my, they do my menu, seven-course degustation menu on the ship, um, and it's up to 2,000 passengers that take it on the last night of the cruise. So, you know, you, 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 you become experienced in many ways, and, and I cooked from nine years old when I was as a child for whānau of ten when I picked up that pot and pan, and, I've, and I only had a pot and pan and a knife for years, and I could cook anything with those three things. So you're the type of cook that could make something out of nothing. Well, uh, well, you know, I made this apple sponge when I was in primary in um, primary school. Most most beautiful thing I'd ever tasted. Can you make an apple sponge? And I thought I want to be the cook of the Farno. So I added that to all my chores, and um, I just kept cooking. And I got better and better. And I've cooked around the world, and um, I've done you know, I've done good from, uh, from from my cooking. It's been a passion, and I've picked it up and, and run with it and I, what I like to do is I love inspiring people to cook and I always say you know to Tamariki you too can be like me yeah. you know if, you, if you're determined and it's a passion. So and on your show Clay Order that we see on Māori TV and the, the Food Network, is that your home? Yes it is, your home? them. Wow, and whereabouts? Uh, the, the one at the beach is at Parkity Beach. Oh God, and I don't like anybody to know that, really. It's, a, it's, it's a, just it's amazing a, views. We're oh, like, oh beautiful. my gosh, where is she? <laughs> and the other one is in my garden in, in uh, Auckland, in Hoon Bay. When you host and when you cook, and then you, then they, as you said before in the start of this interview, that, that that's really what you're like without the cameras. Yes. So. People say, God, you're really natural in front of the cameras. And, you know, it's funny because I've had all these people, as I'm cooking, to talk to. So when I'm looking at the camera, I just think it's my friend. So, you know, blah, 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 talking away to it. So, So, Anne, um, with Christmas around the corner, um, I've spoken to a couple of chefs who have given me their tips about, you know, meat and how to cook the proper steak if you're having a barbecue Christmas. You know, what what, what are some of the tips that that you can offer to to our whanau, to our people? Christmas. Well, um, I always cook simply, and um, my um, Christmas fare every year is kaimana, and I'm either eating it raw or lightly cooked or lightly poached, and um, I cook it with, I have it with um, organic salads or beautiful, fresh, colourful salads, and um, a little bit of waipiro, and um, lots and lots and lots of lovely water. That's it. Pudding? No, I don't do a pudding. No, 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 no. no. I eat so much kaimoana, there's no room for the pudding. <laughs> that is your pudding right there. <laughs> the succulent kinna. <laughs> My favourite. Kinna. And Thorpe Keitoa Tukitira, kia ora. Kia ora. Do you want some? I'm going to try one of your fat oysters. Oh, my gosh. I need to take out my camera. And... Um, so I'm at the um, Parua Bay Oysters Natio stand, and um, everybody has been sampling this beautiful kai. So it's down the hatch. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> if you want a toothpick or just. No, I'll just. Yeah, I'll just sing like that. Choice. Okay. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah. You squeeze some lemon on it. Or? Oh, yeah. There might be a bit of shell. Samples. I can see a bit of shell in that one. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. there, see? Oh, I don't have a washing facility and all that here. So. Yeah, you can help yourself. 
Kia ora Anne Thorpe, no Ngāti Awa, Ngai Terangi. We also heard from Kai in the Bay Māori Wild Food Festival organiser, Henry Heke, no Taranaki Whanui. Sounded like you were enjoying those oysters, Justine. And in between you, Eva, managed to get some photos. Do head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Click through to the photo gallery and you'll see some of them there, as well as photos from stories we've covered during the year. I'm Mariah Rakraku. I'm Justin Murray, and this is Te Ahika. Driving into the property of Joshua and Sarah Kota, you're greeted by the sign Welcome to Paradise. And it's hard not to agree as you weave your way up through the bush incline to a homestead that looks down onto the beach at Tōrere Bay in the Bay of Plenty. Imagine waking up to that view every day. And rather than get in a car and commute the 25 minutes or so to a portiki to a job... The Kotafano put on either their gloves and head to the back shed to their bookbinding business or their gumboots as they go out to the pig dog kennels. Okay, so we're heading out to a whole lot of dog kennels. Yeah. Now what happens over here, Mariah, is that uh, these dogs are sent to us from all over New Zealand. They're all pig dogs. And uh, the reason why people send their dogs to us is because they haven't got the time themselves to train them. But they're all different breeds. They're all different breeds. People have different preferences for dogs. Um, so what are you training them for? They're going, these dogs are going to be going out to learn how to hunt. hunt pigs, find them, keep them there in one place, preferably to uh, bail them. Yep. Yeah. And what bailing is, is when you've got a, you bail up a pig so you corner it and you don't actually attack it or eat it or anything, you just bail it up. Yeah, we just, uh, the dogs here, um, or sometimes we, we get pigs that we might want to to kill off because there's so many at the back there. Yeah. Um, because the paddock adjacent, hey, there's a whole lot of pigs running around. There's, there's the pigs that we have uh, that you can see here, these are our breeders. These are the ones that we're going to be releasing into the bush. Yeah. And our whole area that we train our dogs in consists of 10,000 hectares, which goes right to the back there. So we go up there and um, we go to different places with our dogs and we take them out and give them plenty of work at the back there. But this is where they all, this is where we house them, uh, feed them, keep them. Um, and teach them some good manners, teach them how to uh, respect or obey their name, their names, and um, just general handling. Hey, is that Jack Russell, a pig dog? That's a Jack Russell. That's one of our main pig dogs. No. That's, a, that's, <laughs> that's one of the best pig dogs we've got here. Mind you, they've got hearts of lions, eh, those they dogs? Don't give, they don't give in? No, they don't. But he's uh, here to train some of the other dogs here. He's got more brains than some of those big ones. <laughs> so... Um, it's pretty handy. But in, in when they're on a pig too, the other thing is it's the big dogs that are likely to be hurt more than the little one. So he gets in under the legs and the pig can't find, don't know where he is. Okay, so we're looking at, uh, I mean, you've got eight kennels here. Yeah, and, and just two in each. Yeah, there's about two dogs per kennel. Yeah, yeah there's eight kennels here. There's another four down below there. Uh, so in all, we normally have between 25 and 30 dogs here at one time. Okay, mm. so that's a lot of kai. That's a lot of kai. Mm. And we have a uh, home kill in town that uh, we're affiliated. That that we make sure that the, there's plenty of kai on on hand for them. Okay, so a dog arrives and owners want to train it up to be the most wickedest pig dog. Yeah, that's that's the what whole. What would you do? Well, uh, most so of it's dogs had no training at all. Yeah, most of those have had no training, but there are dogs that have had training but been out of circulation and haven't been working for some time. So they're seeing them here just to get them refreshed. So we run them out for them just for maybe two weeks and just to get them accustomed to what they were doing originally 
and that sets them up again. But most of the dogs here, they are uh, never seen a pig, and they're going to be introduced here before they go home. Not every dog that comes here cuts the grade. Some dogs, uh, you can throw a thousand pigs at it and it won't make any difference. But that's the way it is with dogs. Some dogs got it, some dogs don't. Is Rebecca waiting to give us a demonstration? Uh, yeah, no, Rebecca's just going to show you some of the dogs that uh, she's been handling. In fact, uh, Rebecca's responsible for most of the upkeep of the dogs here. Um, we divide the work equally amongst ourselves. And Rebecca's the main one who looks after, feeds, and... Uh, houses the dogs here. So by training the dogs to be pig hunters, are you also training them to be more sociable with people? That's, uh, that's what we're trying to achieve. Because yeah. you know, pig hunting, especially more recently, or hunting of any kind, mm. has had an extremely negative press. They have. And so what we're looking at here is what could end up being a dying industry. That's right. Now the reason why pig dogs have been getting a bad um, reputation is because they're not in the right environment. Uh, pig dogs are meant to be out working. And, and, and even when they're in the right environment, they have to be with um, housed separately and, and kept an eye on. But they need that room for exercise because a pig dog that has no exercise can become a very dangerous animal. So, Rebecca, how often do you let the dogs out? Well, they're pretty much out all day. But um depends if we're going pig hunting or having a kai. Yeah. So do you take your 16 with you? Um, 16, no. <laughs> heck no. Pretty much I take about two or three at a time. Uh, and if, if one is, like, shy, one is more confident, then that, we'll always keep the shy one or the confident one, the one that knows pigs. So it sounds like anything, eh? You've got to get to know the personalities of who you're dealing with. That's right. And then just create uh, or accommodate their personality. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit like people. Got all different personalities. Okay, so um, you must be whistling at them constantly. Um, whistling at them? No. Uh, we, we, uh, we form this bond, this friendship. Yeah. It's like a relationship. Oh, Friend. so you just sing out to them? Yep. Yeah. So is it hard for you when they have to go home? It is. Yeah. We miss them dearly. We treat them like our own. Mm. And how long can a pig dog stay here with you? Um, up to four weeks. Okay. Pretty much up to four weeks. So Otherwise, it takes about four weeks? Yep. Up to four weeks instead of two years. Yeah. And it takes that long to train them up? Yep, four weeks. Jeez, that's good, eh? That's good it's that way, otherwise I miss them too much. And so will the owner. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do when you get a kuri come to you and it's obvious that it's been mistreated? How do you deal with situations like that? Well, that's the thing. I pretty much bond with it and have it in a kennel, a yeah. separate kennel. Well, not two separate, like yeah. together with all the rest. Yeah. And just keep just keep going. Like talk to it in Māori, you know, it's all right. You know, but um, even though you know that you could be releasing it back to a home where it's going to yep. get treated again. Yep. I know. That's the thing. We just, we, we form this trust and yeah. everything. So, yeah. Do they get a certificate when they graduate? <laughs> <laughs> they get a, it's oh, not they, that kind of school. <laughs> they get a reward with plenty of kai <laughs> and plenty of bonding with a pet. You know, like I'm just looking at the, the dogs here, you know, and they're healthy. I can tell that almost immediately just by looking at them. Too healthy? <laughs> but spoiled. Oh, no, but they look healthy. They're alert. 
And you know, they are very easy to read, eh, animals in a way, because they are just like people. And they tell you when they're not happy. But look, I'm looking at all of them. They're so alert and just he wants to sing, but hey. <laughs> oh, is that why you're over here? Yeah. Calming him down. Yeah. Hey boy. So what make good um, pig hunters? What's the recipe for a really good dog that's a good pig hunter? Um, what makes good hunters or yeah. pig dogs? Oh, yeah, what makes good pig dogs? Oh, what makes good pig dogs? Um, anything's a good pig dog, you know? If you, if you like just a girl, keep, a boy? Um, mostly a girl, yeah? which we call bitch. Yeah. <laughs> that's Rebecca's dad has just said she would say that. <laughs> nah, to be honest, a girl. But, Why is it, but everybody has their own personal choice. Yeah. Where dad, he might have a different choice. He might say, yeah, boy, um, dog. <laughs> so even though you're training up pig dogs, these are dogs that can also be used when you're out stalking deer. Um, no, that's a whole different. That's a whole different process in itself. Yeah. So you either have one for deer, one for pigs. But it really depends on the, the customer itself. Rebecca, what about those fellas in the bush that have just got the same dog that does everything? They sound they don't sound fussy. <laughs> so it's a personal choice. So for me, it's pig hunting. So I'll make sure it always only catches pigs. Pigs only. So what um, are you doing? What am I doing? I'm trying to get a, um, a scared, timid dog onto a truck because I can't get him into the kennel. Yeah, I'm trying to get them up into this truck. What sort of bodies are those? Are those um? Um, deer. Oh yeah, it's not even smelly. I can't smell it. No, <laughs> it's fresh as <laughs> fresh. So you're trying to get them onto the, the back of the truck. Yep, that's right. And then what are you gonna do? Well, because he's so timid, he doesn't like people touching him. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> and then, but what are you gonna do with him once he's on there? Oh, once he's in there, I'm just gonna get him settled down and. And leave him on there, and then gradually, hopefully, get him back in his kennel. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, so this is just all part of the training. It's all part of the training. Get him on the back of the truck, leave him there, get him used to it, and take him out. Yeah. Back to the kennel. But he's just really scared and timid, so. Yeah. Oh, what happened to you on the back of a truck? It's a lot of patience, eh? Yeah, it is. What breed is he? He looks like a Steffi. Um, yeah, a bit of both. Cross. Yeah, Steffi Lab Cross Cattle. Bit of everything, really. As long as he works on the pigs. <laughs> and now he's licking your son. <laughs> right. Okay, Rob, so at the moment we're standing by the kennels. What do you pick a deals with like the maintenance and the care of the dogs? And then what's your role? Um, I mainly take the dogs out into the bush um, and, yeah, just see. Like they've, had, they've done their training here and then I take them out into the bush and um, just see how they, they go on the wild pigs out there and... Um, Hey, you must be bringing catch. back bulls all the time. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to, but sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes we do and other times we don't. And it's just hunting, really. So um, are you walking in or, because I don't see any horses. Um, oh, we've got a couple of horses down oh, yeah. the bottom there, but um, oh, I like, yeah, either by horseback or by walking. It's because it's a lot more quiet and um, you get a good chance to have a listen around and a good chance to sort of look around at all the sign and, and just listen and see how the dogs are performing. So you must be a familiar sight in the bush for the locals, right? Uh, yeah, yep, yep. Um, the locals, yeah. They, um, are you local? Um, I live in Naportiki. Oh, yeah. Um, so you were brought up around here? Uh, no, I was actually brought up um, down in Hawke's Bay. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, I've lived here for a number of years. Uh, have you ended up stumbling on plots and stuff like that? 
yeah, a couple of times, but if, if I do that, I normally just get out. Get out, yeah. yeah. I don't, don't muck around with that kind of stuff. No, um, there's all that booby trip stuff now, eh? Oh, yeah, and, and you know, um, there are a lot of people do get a bit sort of... Um, Territorial. Pre- yeah, so it pays to just... If you stay away from it, then you're not going to get into any sort of mm. trouble with anybody or uh, anything like that, so, yeah. Okay, so the ultimate question that you always ask, which is a way of judging how good a hunter someone is... You take your dogs in, do they all come out? Uh, yep, nine times out of ten they, they, they all come out, but um, on occasion we might get a dog that's um, very keen or something and might take off, and um, I have had to See you later. Yeah, come out, and then I, I normally, if that situation happens, I'll leave so, uh, either something of my clothing or something there that the dog is familiar with. Get the sense so they can get so, home. And I'll leave it there, and then um, I'll come back that night or in first thing in the morning and, to go and get it yeah to go and try and find it but um we have um gps and we have collars oh. now as well so i can keep a track on where the dogs are and um how far out they're going and what they're sort of doing as well um yeah so that that's really handy and uh, yeah it makes my job a lot easier keeping an eye on the dogs so you know you've got to have a certain temperament for this kind of work eh? you've got to one enjoy being by yourself two you have to be reasonably fit to get to get in and out all the time, and you've got to kind of um, have, you know, you've got to kind of have. I mean, I know this is, this may sound a little bizarre, but you've got to be kind of sensible. Uh, oh, definitely. Um, when you're hunting, you have to be, yeah, very sensible. You know, um, so you've got to always be aware of what's around you, so you can get out, eh? Yes, um, you do have the GPS, so that is very handy. But sometimes, like if the batteries fail or whatever, you do have to. Yeah, as you say, you've got to keep an eye on sort of your surroundings. So um, if you do get lost, you can, on your way back, you might think, oh, I remember that tree. I walked past that a couple of hours ago, or I remember that river down there. And then an hour later, you're walking past it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. Going, hey, is it the same tree? Oh, yeah, okay. But, um, <laughs> no, you've, yeah, you, um, you definitely have to sort of keep your wits about you um, on all aspects. Um, a, the, the pigs are a dangerous animal, and if um, you don't respect them, well, then they, yeah, um, things can they get... They go for you. Yep, they can get nasty. And they're nasty. Um, and also, we, like, sometimes we carry firearms as well, so you have to be very careful there. Um, you know, identifying your target, and you've got dogs running around as well. So, um, yeah, but oh, I really enjoy it. So, and the fitness thing is just, yeah... You get fit as you... part of it, eh? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The first couple of times you you sort of struggle, but then, yeah, your body gets used to it, just like anything, really. You know, because I think what people don't appreciate is how animals, when you're in this kind of environment, they really are your best mates. You know, whether that's your horse or your cootie. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, oh, if, if anything happens to my dogs, oh, I, I'm devastated, you know. Yeah, they're like a best friend to me. Um, and they look after you. Oh, definitely, they're you know, very dogs, loyal. horses, they really look after you. Yep, they're very, very loyal animals, and um, yeah, when when you're out in the bush, you, like you say, they're your best mates, and um, yeah, they're, they're out there, they want to please you, so yeah, you want to look after them, eh? <laughs> Shut <Yeah. laughs> One of the things I enjoy about doing what I'm doing here is that working with the family. Now, our culture teaches us, have your children, raise them, and get rid of them as soon as they're old enough to leave home. 
What, the Māori culture? Well, what, what, Gee, not my part of the Māori culture. No, no, no. <laughs> Man, they like have kids, they stay no, no. there, and they guess they keep on staying yeah. there till they're 40. Well, well Māori, Māori culture probably don't can't get rid of them. But the thing is this... Um, oh, you mean the world? Uh, I'm talking about our world culture. culture. Even mm. our nation here in, in New Zealand, uh, the idea is to, to get the, raise the children and send them away as quickly as possible. But over here where I am, uh, our children have gone out into the world, but they've come back because they find that They've found that there's something here that we have here as a family that you can't get out there. So here we are working as a family. We're all getting on with one another and we're creating something that we all were raised with and that we're going to treasure and maintain for generations to come. You know? So we're looking at our grandchildren too. You know, they're, they're going to be raised here and hopefully our great-grandchild. One of the things that I, I've been telling people is that I have the privilege of hunting with my grandson yeah. and then now... He's, I've been told that he's going to have a son. So I'm going to be around when I Jesus. hunt with my great-grandson. So um, I, I, that's my goal. And that, to me, is something that um, money can't buy, to be able to enjoy something with your whanau, especially your generations. You've created a bit of a dynasty here, Joshua. I have, because uh, I was listening to Buck Shelford on, on TV the other day. He, he's waiting for his first mokobuna. He can't wait. And when that, he made the point that when that time comes, it doesn't matter whether he achieves anything else. He wants to be with his mokos. And there is something about that. Because I've chased business for a long time when I was young, coming up. But as soon as the mokos arrived, we go into a new dimension. They come the focus of our lives. And I think that's because that's the Māori in us. We have that affinity with our whānau. Hmm. I'm looking forward to my great-grandson and going hunting with him. Kia ora, Joshua Kota, Rob Dench and Rebecca Kota, a whānau which is very committed to the idea of creating work opportunities in rural Aotearoa. While I was at Tōrere, I took some photos which you can see at our website, radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika, T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A. After this broadcast, you can also listen to that audio again and you can even download it as a podcast. How does a host country brand a worldwide sporting event with its own indigenous flavour? If you're South Africa and it's the FIFA World Cup, you do it with the Vuvuzela, the trumpet-like instrument with that distinctive, high-pitched sound of swarming bees. If you're New Zealand, you hold a competition for Māori designers to present their vision for Rugby World Cup 2011. Uh, tēnā Ladies and gentlemen, kia ora, and welcome to the next part of this special celebration. On behalf of Te Puni Kōkiri, I'd like to thank you for accepting the invitation to join in today's festivities. I'm Derek Fox, and I'll be guiding you through the rest of the program. The kaupapa for today is to celebrate the Māori Art Program, a collection of 11 authentic Māori designs representing Aotearoa New Zealand for the Rugby World Cup 2011. After a year in development, it's now time to celebrate this project, the organisations involved, 
the talented designers, the commercial and cultural benefits, and of course the designs themselves that make up the Māori art program. Before we unveil the designs, I'd like to call on two key speakers to share their thoughts on today's kaupapa. First of all, I'd like to welcome to the stage the Minister of Māori Affairs, the, the Honourable Dr Peter Charples. Tēnā koe, Peter. A kia ora nō tātou. Kei te pai, ki waho tū ki te kōrero. Hari ki roa whare kōrero pākea, mau pepa. Ana. Kei te kāu. Tuatahi ka mihi anō ki a koutau o te raunanga o te tōrangatira. Uh, mō tākou te pōhiri ki a mātou ki a tū tēne wāhi ki ronga uh, ki roto i te whare nei ki rongi tēne marae. Uh, he mea nui ki a hau te minita māu mō ngā take Māori. Nā tame i te rāwiki nā koutau i whakahonore tēnā kaupapa nui te whāna oro. Ko tīmata mai i konei i tēne marae. Ko puta atu ki te motu. Nā rīra kei te mihi atu ki a koutau. Uh, <coughs> nā rīra tēnā tātau. So it's... Um, Fitting that we're back at this Marae, who uh, launched a Fano Ora, a, a program uh, by Māori in, in, in government for uh, everybody. And I think it's a program that we're looking forward to perhaps changing the way that uh, services are delivered to uh, people in New Zealand. So it's fitting that we're back at this Marae and uh, celebrating the, the uh, arts and... Um, what has been created for us, and the recognition of Ngāti Toa as a kaitiaki o kamati. And what you heard today was the full version, not that last one, not that last kinaki. There was about eight, ten hakas there, the last one. But uh, the original one when you came on, kikiki kākaka, that's, that's the beginning and beautiful too. Because uh, if there's one thing that makes us uh, very clearly that we stand out in the world, it's the haka. You know, uh, any country that's heard of rugby, uh, for a start, even uh, on, on rugby, um, know about the haka. But even more than that, uh, our New Zealanders travel overseas. They teach in schools. They go flatting in Britain. They uh, form Maori clubs and uh, do all the, all the sort of things. Um, they go to the Olympics. And what do they do? The haka. And invariably, it's kaumate. So you see... It is a brand for Aotearoa, nei. And so um, I'd like to acknowledge Kanti Toa, Motena Taonga Um So we're really glad to be here today. I better read the notes. As most of you will know, there's less than a year to go now before the kickoff of the first match of the 2011 Rugby World Cup tournament. This will be the biggest sporting event ever hosted in our country, bigger even than even bigger even than when Tauti played Hatopaura. <laughs> yeah, that was a tragedy too. <laughs> <laughs> the Rugby World Cup 2011 is set to deliver some keen competition to keep us uh, on our, on the edge of our seats. But the Rugby World Cup is not just about rugby; it's also about economic and commercial benefits to our country and our people, and that's the kaupapa of today's celebrations. In early 2010, my ministry, Te Puni Kōkiri, set out to promote a set of relationships between the commercial arm of the Rugby World Cup and two Māori groups, Te Runanga o Tō Rangatira and Ngā Aho Incorporated. 
The result today is that we can celebrate the success of these relationships, whereby a whole range of Māori art designs have been developed by our talented young Māori designers, and they're here, really good that they're here, and positioned uh, on official Rugby World Cup 2011 merchandise. This idea would not have come to fruition if it wasn't for the foresight of groups such as Licensing in Motion and their parent company, Velocity Brand Management, and the IMG and the International Rugby Board. So it's a, it's a good day today, and I commend their willingness to engage in such a project and to foresee the added value of combining Māori art with official merchandise. This project is the first of many examples of Māori groups engaging in commercial opportunities around World, uh, Rugby World Cup 2011. I am pleased there is a commercial space for Māori to occupy, and I encourage the commercial and business sector to learn from this project here today and to not shy away from engaging with our people in commercial terms. Māori development involves improving economic conditions for Māori. Sport has a huge potential to promote Māori development, and Māori have made a huge contribution to the development of sport. We started rugby in this country. Oh, okay, that's another topic. Uh, just uh, from this project, there will be financial benefits to the descendants of Tōrangatira, benefits to young Māori uh, designers, and also to Māori rugby. And for the average rugby punter who comes to our shores next year, they will be able to walk away with a piece of clothing or maybe a rugby ball, knowing that they have purchased an authentic indigenous piece of Aotearoa New Zealand. So I look forward to the viewing of the official a collection of Māori art, and I congratulate the young designers who, and they're here, whose uh, skills and talent will be displayed to the world. Kia ora tato katoa. Kia ora. Well, the project that we're here to honour today is now known as the Rugby World Cup 2011 Māori Art Programme. It's developed in two stages. The first stage was all about producing a collection of art, of designs that were authentic, that represented Māori, with a connection to Rugby World Cup 2011. And that could be used on merchandise. To achieve this, Te Puni Kōkiri contracted two groups, Te Runanga o Toarangatira and Nga Aho Incorporated. Six designers were chosen, all of them young, all of them Māori, and all of them extremely talented. With the help of Rugby World Cup Limited, the designs were tweaked, refined, and turned into a collection that one day could be used on official merchandise. Well, folks, the excitement can't be contained much longer. Can I ask Minister Sharples uh, and Kit to please stand up on either side of the curtain? And, um, ladies and gentlemen, as the collection is unveiled, it will be blessed with a karakia. But now I'd like to call on uh, Carol Hirschfeld to come and talk us through the kākahu and the designs that adorn them. Kia ora, Carol. Kia ora, Derek. And kia ora, everyone. I am so delighted to be here today to celebrate you, with you all. Now, this is the part of the day 
where we acknowledge the extraordinary talent of our designers, whose creativity will soon be on display to the world. And we begin with our first designer of the day, and it is Shane Hansen. Shane is very proud to be showing off his design today and is joined by our lovely models. Aroha is commonly translated as love and this is the inspiration behind Shane's two designs that are included in the collection. Kia ora, my name's Shane Hanson. And Shane, where were you? Your, your iwi? Uh, tainui. Um, yeah, so my mum's my, um, my from... Um, out sort of uh, Waikato way, um, and Amarai's Papa Aratu, and um, I'm sort of this for me is sort of being a journey and, and, and getting more understanding and learning more about my Māori heritage and culture. So it's been really exciting. Yeah. So Shane, you're one of the designers um, of some of the images we've seen that will be posted on some merchandise for next year's Rugby World Cup. What what's your background? Um, I spent the probably the last 15 years in fashion design, so it's kind of um, something that just has, has been a natural flow, I think. The funny story is, is that in, in, the, in 2001 I was actually um, hired to be menswear designer for Canterbury. And so it's it's kind of funny to full be circle. yeah yeah it's kind of funny to to come around in a full circle and be wearing a Canterbury garment with my design on it again. I I made a decision about a year and a half ago to become a full time artist. I'd sort of had enough of the um, the corporate game of doing. I had a branding and marketing company, and um, I wanted to focus more on lifestyle and more on stuff that pleased me. You know, my art. What do you mean by lifestyle? Lifestyle wear or just your personal? What, um, what li- you wanted to do? Lifestyle with my father. You know, my, I had a boy. He, he's um, two and a half now, and at that point, um, that was what I wanted to focus on: being a dad, uh, being being at home, and being able to spend half my week with him, and then work-life balance, I suppose they call it these days. And so. Um, yeah, I just needed to adjust and have a less stressful life and um, a fulfilling life, really, and sort of do what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. So back in 2001, when you were designing for Canterbury, did you, I mean, how long did you kind of, what, for the last 15 years you've been... I've been in fashion design 15, yeah, about 15 years, and it's, it's been and sort of had my own label for five years, and then I worked for Town & Country Surf, and uh, means we're designer there, then I went to Canterbury, and, um, and then I... Then I went and, and, and started my own business, branding and marketing, but that had a fashion twist to it as well, so I sort of had a connection with the fashion industry for a while. So Shane, tell us about your particular image. It's, uh, it's, it's Aroha, yeah. with, um, incorporated in the tiki design. Yeah. The basis of actually what started me on my artistic journey was um, learning some te reo, you know, and, and so the first piece I ever did was about whānau and about relationships, and so what I like to do is I start with a word as text as the, um, I suppose, the skeleton of the design, and then everything, the imagery builds itself around that, um, and, and it sort of plays two parts where it, you can, it educates you in, in what that word, word means, but visually it actually has, has the, the meaning of the word, um, and so I've done quite a few things themed, themed around Araha, because Araha for me is all about love, and about love of what I do, and love of, you know, um, who I am, and, and, and those around me, and, and support of my whānau, whānau and things like that, yeah, and so... This this design is actually around the love of the game. So we had this brainstorming session and all these sort of um, elements came out of that and emotions that, that come from the game. And I think what resonated with me is that um, the commitment and the love that's, that happens outside of the game. So these people come together to play this quite hardcore game. But then there's these friendships that are built for life. There's um, this sort of 
that side of you know family that, that comes with that and, and building lifelong friendships. Because you're a team on the field, you know. Yeah, when yeah. you when you're a missing yeah. link of the, yeah. the team, yeah. And, I mean, and you show loyalty to that, yeah, and you loyalty. show love to your mates, and and I mean that. And I also, I, I from working in the industry too, is that, and with rugby, I wanted to do something that had a bit more of a feminine side to it as well, because I think Not sometimes so things could be yeah, they end up too aggressive and um, and yeah. And manly, so I wanted to do something with a bit of a feminine twist, um, and because and, a lot of my designs are sort of like that, my artworks are sort of really soft and, and got nice lines and curves, and, and so I wanted to sort of um, yeah play on that. So Shane, when you saw the models, we saw the models walk out with uh, well, you were, you were one of the models with your <laughs> beautiful red hoodie. I mean, what what I like about it is that I mean, with the tiki, it's such a symbol that. Even if you're like walking past a necklace or walking past the image, it kind of stands out. So, I mean, what was your first? Was this the first time you saw your um, design on the hoodies and, and t-shirts today? Yeah, it was. Yeah, um, and I actually think that that Canterbury did a good job um, in the way that they applied the design and, and their printing method. Like, uh, I, that, and that's one thing that I, I, I suppose I was a little bit nervous with with the project is that I have, I've done so much of this sort of stuff before and I've seen it turn out quite poorly, and so. That was a hesitation on how they would um, apply the design, and I think all us designers felt that at some stages, like, how are we going to get our piece of artwork um, to look right on, on the garment? Kia ora, Shane Hansen, Nort Kainui, a fashion designer who created the brand Aroha for next year's Rugby World Cup 2011. We'll feature more designers involved in this project on Te Ahika next week. Don't forget, we're on Facebook. You can search for our page, Te Ahika. Click like us and you'll see our weekly updates about what's coming up. And you can even leave us a comment, whether it's feedback about our shows or a friendly kia ora. Tēnā me tukua mai o kōrero ki farangi. Since winning the reality television talent quest Australian Idol in 2009, Stan Walker has collected accolades and awards on both sides of the Tasman. Lisa Collins and I reviewed his latest album, From the Inside Out. A year ago, Stan Walker was declared the winner of Australian Idol. Not bad for a Māori boy from Tauranga. I'm in the studio with Lisa Collins, and we're reviewing his second album, From the Inside Out. When was it released, Lisa? It was released about three months ago. Off the first album that was released that was a whole lot of a whole lot of covers? That, that was a whole lot of covers. It was recorded in two days after he won Idol, so it wasn't as personal as this album is. Uh, I went out and bought this album because I knew that Stan had some contributions to the album. So, for example, he's helped to co-write a few songs, and you can really tell through uh, Inside Out, which is the opening, the first track, and he talks about uh, if you don't, basically, if you don't like him, where he's coming from, that's fine. But this is him, and he doesn't, he's not there to please anybody but himself and be true to himself. He also talks about his relationship with God, and he um, also talks about his relationship with God and his song with me. And he kind of combines that that aspect as well as his relationship with his girlfriend. And so with these songs in particular, you can see where Stan's coming from, from a personal point of view, and I think that's quite hard to do in the music industry. It's quite a bit of a juxtaposition of sorts because although he's got his 
lyrics coming out in these songs, the production is quite an American-style feel. I found the production was is, um, is quite overpowering. Yes, definitely. It's very overpowering. So I, I think you just get used to that. But if, if you like that sound... It's very slick. Very, from my point of view, Southern-style R&B, hip-hop, Sierra, T.I., Timberland style of production. Um, songs that spoke to me personally, apart from those ones, were the one I really enjoy that song because of the singing with Pixie Lot. Uh, Who's Pixie Lot? She's a singer from Europe, I think. And um, the although I think the marriage is is a little bit strange but it comes out really well in terms of it's a great song to sing to so he can hold his own he holds his own and he does these beautiful tones yeah. he's got beautiful tones and uh with pixie lot she's got this real raw husky kind of awesome voice and so it's, it's really nice tones coming out in that song um he's very skilled very skilled as a singer. The whole album is just great to listen to. It's got a great range. It's strange because I, I thought there'd be a lot more sing-along songs on the album. Um, but I found that some songs it's not really that easy to sing to. <laughs> and they seem very romantic. Yeah, well, with like... the exception of the one, which is the duet that I talked about with Pixie Lot, which basically talks about breaking up with someone that you've been with. The rest of the songs are pretty much love love anthems, which is yeah, which is nice and so it's a bit strange having that one song about breaking up with a whole range of other songs that are to do with uh, you know, being in love. I guess stuck in the box that he does with um he sings the the chorus Young Sid, who raps about um, being stuck in a box and getting not being able to get out of where you are in a situation, and so uh, that was the other song that didn't wasn't really a love, love, lovey dovey type song. I wanted to mention the song Unbroken. Yeah, that was a song written by Ryan Tedder, who who has written a lot of big pop songs, like from Beyonce to. Rihanna type hit songs. The guy who produced his album was um, producing music for Rihanna's album, so he was really, really lucky. And I think that's the Australian, like the Australian music industry, was able to do that for him. Yeah. yeah. So there, there's quite a lot of haters, eh, Lisa, that see those reality TV music shows as you know not really being uh, places that you can identify real talent. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I think that uh, they were proven wrong through Stan Walker. I mean, throughout the show, he was basically um, had the chance to deal with international artists who have, so for example, Michael Bublé. Who couldn't stop raving about him. Yeah. Choose You is the reason why I bought the album, actually. I just, it's the second single off the album. And it's funny that it's the second single because I thought it was the first single. <laughs> <laughs> Does it have that first single kind of vibe to it? 
It does have a first single vibe to it, and so I would have thought that it would have been the first single, but yeah, it was great. Um, I love that song so much. And, and yeah, it basically brought me to buying the album. Do you think that this is the kind of artist he is in this kind of genre? In a few of the songs, he's able to represent himself. So he's R&B? I think he is R&B. Uh, yeah, he's R&B, pop. Yeah. I guess he could go into the soul kind of area. He he is quite emotional and he's a bit of a... He's a deep thinker, you can see that. But for now, he's, you know, pulling out these great pop songs and is, you know, being successful in that. He, he actually started up his own... Muse a record company, I think, to have more control of the record because of a previous Australian Idol winner who released songs but didn't actually make any money from them. So Stan's been, you know, he's... Obviously getting good advice. Yeah, getting great advice and enlisting the help of his family. His mum's his manager. Yeah. You're recommending it? I'm recommending it because it's just a great album to just pop on in the car and listen to on the way home or on the way, you know, going to a friend's house. It's just really easy to listen to. Uh, definitely I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I killed her called Lisa Collins, Tokuingwa, Noa Natikahunu, Tina Koto Katoa. Kyoda Lisa Collins. Aneda Aneda Glavish with this week's Fakatoki. My favourite Fakatoki is Ngati Hine, of course. Um, comes from Sir James Hinari. Kafiti Rawa, Ito Tato Haire Ngatu, Te Kore Haire Tondu. Maharawa o Tato Mahi, Te Kore Mahi Tondu. We have come too far to not go further. We have done too much to not do more. Kia ora tātou. Ko um, Neida Klavish tōku ingoa, uh, ko Kaipara te moana, ko Ngāti Whātua te iwi. Ko tai anō ki te mutunga a te ahikā. That's our show for this week. Before we leave, we close this broadcast with a version of the Lord's Prayer performed by Hukarere Girls College. We're dedicating it to the West Coast families of the miners in Greymouth. Ka nui te aroha ki nga whānau whānui o māwhira. Kia kaha, kia maia, kia manawa nui. He mihi tēnei ki ngā kai kōrero katoa i tēnei wiki. Anō nei te mihi mai o hā ki tā mātou kaira wiki wiki mihini, ngā mihi. Hoki mai hei tērā rātapu. Mauri ora tātou katoa.